I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Director of the Scattergood Program for the Applied Ethics of Behavioral Healthcare and Assistant Professor of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania, Dominic Sisti, Ph.D., and today we're going to be talking about the fair, fair resource allocation during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Rutterman Family Foundation, a leading disability rights organization, has published a new white paper that has recommendations to help health policymakers make decisions to ensure the lives of people with disabilities are not secondary amid the collective public health goal to save the most lives during the COVID-19 pandemic. The study's author, Dominic Sisti, who's here with us today, also analyzes the landscape surrounding people with disabilities and disaster medicine. Attending to patients with disabilities who have medical conditions other than COVID-19 and visitation in hospital and residential facilities. Dr. Sisti, whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and Slate, also studies how mental disorders are defined and categorized with a focus on personality disorders. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on. Thank you. Uh, yes, Dominic. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about the fair resource allocation during the COVID-19 pandemic. Let, let's kind of define that problem. What does that mean? I guess what you're saying is, or what has what these papers have revealed, is that people who have disabilities are not being treated uh, in the same way that when you're talking about triage, who to save, who not to save, that's what we're talking, you know, we, we are not. Or yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so the, the goal of the paper wasn't necessarily to say that it's happening now, but to, to rather put out a, you know, a statement that says it ought not happen, and, 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 um, and we should be very careful of how resources are allocated, that we don't um, inadvertently um bias ourselves against individuals with disability when it comes time to decide if there is a scarce uh scarcity in in our ICUs um who who should get the ventilators and you know a big worry is that individuals who present with covid symptoms and who are very sick but also have a a disability that they've been living with that those folks will be subjected to unintentional bias in that decision. Well, are we talking about specific types of uh, disabilities? I mean, if you take people like old people, yeah. for instance, coming from nursing homes, I don't know if you consider mm -hmm. that a disability, but you're talking about people who may be in their 80s and 90s or even 70s. Correct, right. Um, that population. Yeah, so I wouldn't categorize age as a disability, and I wouldn't, and, and in our paper, we're clear to say that age should not be considered an eligibility criterion. So, in other words, there's some, there were some triage plans that were saying anyone over the age of 80 is ineligible. And we just say that's just, you know, that on its face is unethical to just create arbitrary age markers. However, if there are comorbidities that are associated with age that the person then has, those comorbidities, insofar as they may make it more um, or, or less likely that the person will thrive with critical care, that those are factors that should be accounted for. So age on its face, no, but with the comorbidities that may be um, attached to elderly people in some cases, those are the important uh, factors that we want to be careful about. That would be half of Congress. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <A little laughs> yes. 
a little bit of humor into all of this is okay, right? Well, um, well I will say that um, speaking of someone in Congress, we we are clear to um, we are clear that you know in, individuals who have physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities, psychiatric disabilities. These are the folks who are important um, to us, and that we should be very very careful in protecting. These are vulnerable individuals, and you know the history of of medicine points to lots of instances where folks with these disabilities were marginalized or treated unfairly. And we want to just be sure that that doesn't happen during this very difficult time when we're dealing with a global pandemic. So how do you do that? How do you make sure that this doesn't happen? First of all, people are going into hospitals uh, with or without disabilities and they have nobody with them. And and even in the best of times, they always say you need an ombudsman, somebody there to stand up for you. So now nobody's there to stand up for anyone, really. Um, It's a great great point. Yeah. You know, the the need for an advocate is is critical here. Um, And in our white paper... We describe how ethics triage, how triage teams should, in fact, include ethics consultants and individuals from the disabilities community to help formulate both the policy around triage as well as the impl- implementation of the policy and decisions. So, thinking through actual cases on the ground, we recommend an individual who has lived experience with a disability in case there is some bias that's creeping into the decision. Um, so yeah, it's a great question that being able to do this is not easy. You need, you know, a, a good smart team that has some background I think in in bioethics and medical ethics to, you know, think these issues through and you need clear communication that works quickly because these are decisions that you can't wait around for. And it would seem to me some hospitals are better uh set up for that. I mean, you're at Penn. I mean, you talk about yeah. the, you know, the, they have those kinds of committees even before the pandemic smaller hospitals medium right. hospitals medium-sized hospitals don't have that um maybe you could comment on that i mean if you're that, at a, yeah 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 no that's a great point too i mean the um the haves and the have-nots here in terms of just resources for these types of decisions um mean that the sort of ethics around this question may be subject to sort of geographic variation. And we want to try to figure out ways to make that less the case so that we have consistency across the board in terms of how individuals with disabilities are treated. So some ideas that have been floated involve using telemedicine, essentially, to involve ethics experts and other experts on triage in decisions being made in community hospitals, rural hospitals, places that don't have sophisticated ethics um, procedures in place so that, you know, everyone has access to some kind of resource around making these decisions in a way that's more, I guess, ethically informed. Yeah. So telemedicine is, uh, I, I think that's one of the positive things that has evolved, I guess, because we had telemedicine before the pandemic, but um, it's really evolving in a much more sophisticated way. You just mentioned one way, which, uh, which I think yeah. is great. And it seems to me that is happening around the country, is is it not? It is. I mean, it, you're right. I mean, telemedicine is one bright spot here that I think we're discovering is very um, useful, efficient, and safe. So, 
we, you know, we're finding that non-essential in-person visits can be easily transitioned over to a telepsych visit for psychiatry, for example, um, random usual checkups or things uh, related to just basic questions about symptoms and things like this. You know, they save time, they save money, and most importantly, they save the person a trip to a doctor's office where exposure could happen. Yeah, I I want to, because I uh, started, um, I guess, in my introduction talking, I mentioned the Rutterman Family Foundation, um, which is a leading disability rights organization, and then obviously that you are associated with um, in some way. Um, Talk to us about what what exactly does the Rutterman Family Foundation do? What has it done even before all, yeah. Yeah, so it was founded... um, 20 or so years ago, Jay Ruderman, who's the president now, um, describes their mission as advancing the causes of individuals with disability in every facet of American life. So they do things, you know, they have programs related to inclusion of individuals with disabilities in cinema, for example, in film. So they'll advance the, you know, the careers, help help and support the careers of individuals with disabilities in, in acting, for example. They've... Um, you know, good good collaboration with disability advocates um, across the country and 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 actually the world. They have um, important programs in Israel, um, and they have been working uh, on behalf of individuals with all kinds of disabilities, from physical to intellectual disabilities, um, to advance the cause of individuals with disabilities. To give them, to give individuals in the disabilities community, the um, equal consideration they deserve in every aspect of of community life. And when we're talking about disabilities, I mean, what are, what are we talking about? We sort of touched on that at the beginning of the interview, but are we listing yeah. the disabilities? You know, or is there a list? I don't want to make an inventory here of disability. I mean, I guess you could use the Americans with Disabilities Act to lay out a definition of a disability, but. But, you know, you know, disabilities range from physical disabilities that maybe make an individual um, chair-bound, for example, um, or they could be in- intellectual disabilities that require an individual to have, say, assistance in completing daily tasks related to, saying, pay bills or work, uh, work-related um, accommodations. Um, disabilities range, right? They range across the scope of both, you know, severity, but also... Just, um, just generally from intellectual to physical. So there is a wide range of conditions or states of life that are considered disabilities. And, um, and, and you know, these are conditions that we all are, you know, potentially um, patients or disabled people. Or, you know, I, I like to say we're future disabled. Everyone who feels like they're able-bodied now is actually future disabled in the sense that there will come a time when you will need assistance or accommodation in your life to meet the activities of daily living that, you know, you, you value. And that's what I think of as disability. And I always like to know, like, well, how did your, what prompted your, you have a, uh, your, I don't know what your PhD specifically is in, but how your interest in persons with disabilities, how did that come about? So I have a PhD in philosophy with a, a major specific area in, in medical ethics. And my interest in disability really emerges out of um, psychiatric illness and disability. And so thinking about the question of how we take care of individuals with serious psychiatric illnesses has um, helped me think through 
the questions around disability in other in other areas of, of life and medicine. Um, I'm also interested in the philosophical concept of what counts as a disability, and we kind of just touched on that briefly. But there's a there's a big literature on in philosophy of medicine actually on what should count or how do we define disability and disease actually. You know, these are things that we think of as sort of natural um, sort of states that kind of are objective and we can define pretty easily. But it turns out that's not that's not true. A lot of disabilities and even diseases have a heavy dose of values and, and sort of political, um, cultural um, um, uh, interests and values around how they're defined. And so thinking through exactly what we define as a disease or as a disability is philosophically interesting, but it also has, you know, significant policy implications because when you decide one thing counts as a disability over another thing, another entity, another constellation of behaviors or symptoms, you've just then decided that some people get certain accommodations while other people do not. And that's a really important, you know, ethics and policy type issue. So, my interest in disability emerges both from my work in mental health, but also my work on the philosophy of medicine and the concept of disease itself. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, and kind of going back to the hospital. Uh, you know, there were, I don't know if it was truth or whisperings, but in New York City when the surge happened a few weeks ago, that they were discriminating, I mean, against, they were making, in triage, making decisions about who should live and who should die if they weren't, because there weren't enough ventilators and enough PPEs and all of the medical equipment. Mm -hmm. um, and those kinds of decisions were being made at some of the major hospitals in, in, in New York City. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the need to triage during a disaster as you know as we experienced and I, I think continue to experience that the, the need to triage will in fact mean that people are going to decide you know clinicians and 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 um, committees will have to decide who will get a ventilator and who won't get a ventilator and that is essentially a, a decision to allow someone someone to die and someone to live potentially so those are decisions that are made um, you know with with very very serious uh, reverence and and thought, um, but they're not. These are not uncommon types of decisions that have to be made in you know ca catastrophic situations. So, um, you know, the question isn't about making triage decisions per se, but rather how and by what criteria those decisions are being made. And so, you know, triage choices and triage decisions are often associated with battlefield medicine. Right when you've only got so much, you know, so many resources, so many doctors, but you've got casualties coming in from the battlefield. How do you decide who, who, to whom you should provide your resources, your very limited resources? And those types of decisions can um, turn on specific sort of utilitarian factors around who's going to have the best chance of survival, for example, or who might live the longest after the, you know, after the incident. So. Those, it sounds um, like it's like Sophie's choice. Well, you know, in a, in a way, it can be you know likened to that. I mean, I think the yeah, it's a, these are not you know happy choices anyone makes. It's a choice about your least. It's it's let's put it this way: it's not the kind of choice 
where you're looking for the, uh, the, the sort of happy ending. You're just looking for the least bad option. And, you know, in that way, it's, it's, it's a tragedy, but it's a tragedy that often, you know, has to be mitigated or can be mitigated by good, clear thinking about, um, about triage. Can you set up a, an example for us? Give us an, exa- an example sure. of how that can happen, yes, sure. of how you do that. So, you know, going back to your question or your point about age, so let's say an individual who's 82 arrives in the emergency department, has, you know, clear COVID, advanced COVID symptoms, they're in respiratory distress, you have, a you know, an ICU that's filled right now with people who have, um, you know, severe symptoms. There's one, there's no ventilators left. This individual who's 82 shows up and you think, geez, they're 82. Maybe they're already, um, sick or something, but it turns out they're actually really healthy. I'm thinking of my dad, actually. He's really healthy. He's 82. Okay. <clears throat> he shows up and there's all the ventilators are full or used, but it turns out there's one person on a ventilator who is, say, in their 40s, but has suffered a catastrophic respiratory response to COVID and is now in a coma, is now unresponsive. Now, in that type of case, you have someone who's, you know, twice the age of the other person, but they're healthier, they may have a better prognosis. One might argue that that individual who is now comatose and potentially, um, you know, on the cusp of death already on the ventilator, that that person maybe, you know, we could ethically, justifiably, take the ventilator from that individual and give it to the 82-year-old who's healthy and has a better prognosis. That would be a kind of triage choice. Now, there's algorithms, there's sophisticated decision-making frameworks. I just gave you very basic details. But the, the algorithms and the formulas that are used, and I'm thinking of particular right now, the University of Pittsburgh's uh, triage plan, they use um, a variety of metrics uh, one of which is called the SOFA score, which is used in, in ICUs to determine sort of the prognosis and survivability of an individual. They use all sorts of um, clinical facts and clinical exams to determine who is the most appropriate person for the resource. And so that would be one example. Um, I intentionally used an older person to show that, you know, it's not going to be the case that the older person gets refused potentially refuse the, the ventilator, but it could, in fact, be somebody half their age. It really does matter about the comorbidities and the stage at which their COVID has advanced. So that's, a, give us, a, all right, that's, that's one example. How about another example when you have somebody who's like 82, like you're describing someone like your father, healthy, um, in, in terms of comorbidity, is, is healthy, doesn't have any underlying conditions, and then you take a 20 year old who's in the same situation who, you know, there's mm-hmm. not enough ventilators, but that 20 year old is also healthy, no underlying, uh, you know, physical problems, et cetera. But, you know, mm-hmm. you have one ventilator mm-hmm. left a 40 and mm-hmm. a 20 year old and an 80 year old. Yeah. So if you set it up so that all things are equal except age, then mm-hmm. we have a, then we have kind of a problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> So That's why there's I, other, yeah. yeah, so, right. So all things being equal other than age. Yeah. That, that sets up a dilemma um, because we don't want to use age as a, as a medical criteria when it's kind of not, you know, relevant. Um, so, you know, there's, um, there's all sorts of ideas and sort of uh, formulas for tiebreaker 
type decisions. And, um, and so, yeah, so there could be everything from flipping a coin to a lottery to other types of sort of randomization when all things seem to be equal. Now, I would, I would argue that such a case is, is likely impossible. There's always going to be some medical feature that's relevant. Um, and so, you know, hypothetical thought experiments are one thing. And I should say, you know, this is the kind of thing that I did in graduate school as thought experiments and wrote papers on these things as hypotheticals. Didn't think I'd have to really ever confront the reality of this type of uh, situation in our time and in our country. But here we are. Do the circumstances, the person's circumstances, let's say family circumstances count? Let's say take a 25-year-old with three children that he's he or she is responsible for uh, and to take the 80-year-old who's not in that kind of a position. Does the, 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 social, you know, the sociological factors come into play or the family issues? Yeah, so social factors should not really come into play. And, and, and on this, I, I you know, just kind of refer over to organ transplant um, criteria and who who's um, sort of on the waiting list to get an organ um, you know organs are super scarce think about livers kidneys you know when when decisions are made about who can be on the the waiting list and at what you know what place they're on the waiting list those are medical criteria social criteria ought not play into this so unless now I, I will <laughs> one caveat here which is that follow-up for an organ transplant requires and, and recovery from an organ transplant requires a strong social support network to ensure adherence to medication and other things. So if it doesn't appear that the individual will be able to stay adherent to their, say, immunosuppressant drugs and stay compliant with everything they have to do to make the organ work, that, you know, that can come into you know, consideration. That's a little different, I think, than a social factor. That's more of a medical compliance factor. But, but uh, I would, you know, I would argue that the, the idea of, oh, it's a father of three versus just a, you know, sort of an individual, um, you know, retiree or something, those types of fa- factors really ought not enter into the calculation around triage. So ideally, who makes the final decision? Like, who is the, the is there yeah. one? Yeah. I think, that, you know, I think it should be a shared decision involving you know, the family of the patient, you know, the patient themselves, if they're aware and awake and can, you know, consent to decline care, for example, um, and, and the clinical team. So it should be a shared decision that's, uh, that's agreed upon or that there's some consensus around, and ideally. Um, again, now, if, if there's conflict or if there's disagreement, there are mechanisms in place to try to resolve those differences, but Ideally, it should be a shared decision. So, where do you go next? I mean, now that you've you, you uh, where are you going next after having published these the new these white papers from the Ruderman Foundation? What are you going to do with it? So, you know, I'm thinking. Well, there's a number of directions we can we can take this um, the set of issues, and we really need to begin to prepare for future waves. We've, I think, um, done a good job of dampening the surges in the curve, but I fear that we're going to be confronting these issues again in the fall. And so really honing our triage mechanisms and our triage, our thinking around triage is, is going to be critical. Um, in terms of individuals with disabilities, there's been um, a, really a boom of, of scholarship on this issue in the last two months, 
and I'm I'm really confident that the triage guidelines will begin to reflect, and many do already, but will will reflect the values of individuals in the disabilities community. So, so you know, we're still. I think this is still actually a work in progress. Um, there are no real final answers to these very deep philosophical questions. But as we gain experience with the virus and with the pandemic, we're able to sort of use those data to refine our triage plans. And we can watch and we can see how are individuals with disabilities being being cared for. You know, I think the, um, the greatest tragedy, which I think we're going to need to really think hard about and figure out some solutions around, are the nursing homes and long-term care facilities. Yeah, and that's a whole other topic. We have like 30 seconds left. Fascinating talking ah, to you. Yeah. I mean, as you say, yeah. this is ongoing. Love to have you on the show again to continue to talk about it. To be, um, We've been talking to Dr. Dominic Sisti, and the topic is fair resource allocation during the COVID-19 pandemic, and he's from the University of Pennsylvania. Um, thanks so much for being on the show today. Sure, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 